I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm talking today with my good friend, Bonnie Pittman. Bonnie is a nationally recognized leader in the museum community. Her career spans 50 years of service in the museum, education, and university fields. She's a nationally recognized leader whose expertise in research and audience and civic engagement have transformed museums and their work with audiences. Bonnie was the Eugene McDermott Director of the Dallas Museum of Art, and served as deputy director for 12 years, and has served as a curator, educator, and administrator at the University of California's Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archives, Seattle Art Museum, New Orleans Museum of Art, Winnipeg Art Gallery, and the Bay Area Discovery Museum. Since 2008, Bonnie has been living with a chronic illness. In 2011, she began her daily practice to do something new, inviting the exploration and celebration of making an ordinary day extraordinary while dealing with chronic illness. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnie. Thank you, Sharon. It's wonderful to be with you and all of our friends today. It's just wonderful to to be with you. Even hearing your voice makes me happy, <laughs> as we had just said. So I thought maybe we could start the conversation with just a little bit more about your journey. You've had such a an extraordinary career. You faced some pretty immense health challenges, still facing. So let's start with what drew you to art and inspired you to work in that realm. 
Well, uh, from the time I was a little girl, um, I uh, knew artists as major parts of my community because I grew up in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And uh, in my neighborhood was Hans Hoffman and Robert Motherwell and Helen Frankenthaler. So I thought that was something that you did in life, uh, seriously, was be a practicing artist. Um, my mother and my grandmother loved art, and uh, they took me to the National Gallery of Art, which was the very first place that I saw truly great paintings, and two of them stay with me even to today. One is a tondo, a circular painting by Raphael of a Madonna and child, and the other is a beautiful little Renoir portrait of a girl holding a watering can. I always thought I was that little girl in the blue dress, blue velvet dress. But the reason I love art is that artists tell stories and um, they create beautiful things that resonate with our soul. And for me, it was the joy of being in their presence. And uh, I can close my eyes now and see the same images that I did when I was a little girl. Um, my long career in museums has a lot to do with the fact that I love uh, the collections of museums and in art museums in particular, it's like a visual dictionary or encyclopedia. And you can learn everything you need to know about uh, about the world and love and sex and um, war. Mm. Um, the other part is that I'm very dyslexic. <laughs> and mm. so The visual world was one I understood. I have a very powerful visual memory, but reading and writing were huge challenges. And um, so understanding the world through space and place and with objects has been the way that I've navigated and succeeded. Wow, that's so uh, incredible. Um, Speaking as somebody who's very, uh, very tied to words, you know. Um, I think for many, you know, as they think about art, it's maybe enjoyment or entertainment or um, something, but not necessarily an entryway or or very connected to contemplative practice. But it it does seem to me that a big part of your motivation in curation Mm -hmm. is to facilitate deeper questions. And I'm wondering if you can say, a little bit about how you see art fitting into life and what role it can play in our experience? Well, the the gift we have is that human beings from Paleolithic times have uh, created works of art, the hand paintings on the on the caves of Lascaux or uh, all around the world. Um, art tells these stories, as I mentioned, of our lives, our successes, our failures, of the tragedy and the beauty uh, of being in this world. And these visual records are really um, very similar um, to uh, to the stories that we that we see in literature. Observing art for me, is very much, uh, is very similar to a mindfulness activity um, because you're stepping into the presence of the work and focusing on uh, for a moment, for a period of time, deeply and observing uh, in details and purposefully and intentionally um, with all of your senses and then um, trying to understand what the art story the artist is telling you without making uh, judgments. In Buddhism, uh, as you know, Sharon, there's a huge tradition of uh, art being created for the past 2,500 years. And it's used specifically there as a vehicle of meditation. Um, and what I love is that in Buddhism, Buddhist art, we have not only the paintings and calligraphy and poetry and gardening, but it's also flower arrangements and tea ceremonies. Um, Of all of the art forms in Buddhist art, the one that resonates the most with me are the great mandala sand paintings. Mm -hmm. Um, They are are so uh, intended to demonstrate this key thought that art is temporary. Its Mm -hmm. meaning is timeless. Art is temporary, but its meaning is timeless. And the colorful mandalas with all of their exquisite detail and the deep meanings um, that they have in the individual um, symbols in it are then brushed away at the end of the week in a breathless, for me, ceremony. They're destroyed. 
mm-hmm. and um, gathered up. And then the sand that is gathered up is dispersed um, into water and the mandala's healing powers are carried forward. So that concept of interconnectedness um, of all of the work of art being really a part of life and the future is very much, very much in, in the presence. Um, in Buddhist art, it goes on for um, so many wonderful examples, but I just want to mention um, another very different artist, Claude Monet, who um, his um, who is a painter of the moment, and he did five series of um, in his in his uh, thousands of paintings that he created representing the different times of day, the seasons of the year, um, and specifically focused on how light was affecting water lilies, haystacks, mm. Rouen Cathedral, the Houses of Parliament, or even simple poplar trees. And he painted them over and over again so that he could dr- understand the dramatic differences of the interplay of light. And seeing the same thing over and over again in different ways is is a celebration that's very much a part of the practice of my do something new and also of meditation. It's definitely a very Buddhist thing, you know. It is a very Buddhist thing. You're right. Repeat that. (laughs) It's very true. And, you know, I'm also listening to, I'm thinking about a conversation I've talked about many times um, on this podcast uh, that I had with Bell Hooks some years Mm -hmm. ago when I was, I was working on, the book Real Change, which is sort of about the inner work of mindfulness and outer yeah. manifestations of bringing change to the world. And, and, and Bell Hooks told me that she didn't really like the term social action because she said for some people it might only imply protesting or marching mm-hmm. or something like that. And she looked at me and she said, what about art? Yeah. You know, which might totally dissolve our... Uh, stuck place, you know, or or yeah. some idea that we're holding that suddenly we're looking from another perspective altogether. Right. And that's what artists do. I mean, another, there are so many artists that use this in uh, this changing perspective in their artwork. Deben, Richard Diebenkorn did 145 paintings of ocean parks in the Ocean Park series, mm. basically looking out his window to the Pacific Ocean. And they're totally abstract. You wouldn't necessarily know that they were, you know, this view of the, of the beautiful blue Pacific. And the colors change in all of them in the abstract forms change in all of them but there's a resonance there and there's so many artists uh duchamp or uh georgia o'keefe who do this over and over again because they see something anew and that new is uh the gift that they then share with us that's Mm -hmm. one of the things i think about art is that these works are intentionally made to be shared Mm -hmm. that's interesting that's very interesting. You know, I, I also am thinking um, in, in listening to you about um, this panel I, I witnessed once with the Dalai Lama on it, speaking about art. Uh, mm-hmm. It was at Emory University. It was sponsored by the art department, so that's why the topic was there. And um, the first question uh, was something I have been asked in some form or another many, many, many times, which is, um, do you believe great art has to come from great suffering? Mm. And um, which is a very Western, you know, notion. Very Western. You know, notion, the tortured yeah. artist and all that. <laughs> uh, so on the panel with the Dalai Lama was uh, the writer Alice Walker and uh, Richard Gere, the actor. So wow. uh-huh. they spoke first. And Alice Walker said um, when she'd been young, younger, um, that had been like her mentors had, had been very much coming from that perspective and mm. and she just believed it. But then as she got older and happier, she thought her poetry was getting better. And uh, Richard Gere talked about being an angry young man. And the whole time the Dalai Lama was looking a little perplexed, as he sometimes does when the question itself is so out of his, you know, mm-hmm. uh, way of saying. And, and finally he basically said... Um, People are always taking me places and showing me like buildings or paintings or things mm-hmm. and saying, isn't it beautiful? And, and he said in the Tibetan culture, 
we believe like the beauty or the worth of a piece of art depends on what happened to the creator mm. in the process mm. of making it. Like, did they get mm. kinder? Did they get smarter in sense of, you know, more enlightened, mm-hmm. you know, that's what really is the, wow. the worth of something. And it was really fascinating. A very different perspective. It's a very different perspective. <laughs> very different perspective. But there has been a lot of suffering by artists, but it's not the sole reason they produce. I think one of the things in my talks and uh, teachings around art and medicine has been the fact that I have a whole lecture, um, actually five lectures, on artists with illnesses and how uh, all of them overcame or Mm-hmm. pushed through Matisse created a new f- style of art he did the cutouts after he couldn't stand anymore because of cancer and you know there are thousands and thousands of examples but the the important thing to realize is that artists can't stop making art mm-hmm. this is who they are this is their being this is their essence and so they push through the pain um even George O'Keefe when she became blind with macular degeneration generation went on to not paint anymore but to create sculptures Mm -hmm. oh i have so many friends who are hearing this they're gonna just resonate deep in their souls you know (laughs) like yes you know i can't stop Um, i can't stop yeah yeah. i mean and and they can't stop that's it comes it's a drive in their spirit in their soul yeah and that's great. So now I'm curious about when you first encountered formal meditation practice. Wow. Um, that is a great question. Um, I was lucky enough to go to the Seattle uh, Art Museum in the 1980s. And when I was there, I was, um, uh, they have one of the great uh, Asian collections in the United States. So I started studying Buddhism and Hinduism through the works of art. And then in 1990, I moved to Berkeley and California and worked at the University Art Museum Pacific Film, Film Archives. And a friend of mine, uh, Jack, Jacqueline Bass, was uh, took us on a retreat over at the Green Gulch Zen Center. And um, I suddenly... Uh, really fell in love, uh, to, to be really honest about that. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was an amazing transformation for me, um, because I realized that I could do this, uh, not very well, but that Mm -hmm. this open, um, that I could settle my mind and it was, uh, I could, I enjoyed the breathing. I didn't enjoy the pokes in the backs, um, which did okay, happen the in, that, yeah. in the sense <laughs> center. You know, the, the staying, trying to keep me awake. But um, but uh, it was a great introduction. And then uh, when I moved to Dallas in 2000, what happened is there's virtually nothing here. I mean, it was a oh, desert. Mm-hmm. And so I had these connections and went back to Berkeley for um, all, over two years to continue my practice with uh, a group of people in a series called Awake. And this brought together artists and meditation teachers. And we met at Green Gulch and I met a whole raft of wonderful people. And out of that, um, came several books, including ones you may know called The Buddha Mind and Contemporary Art and The Smile of the Buddha. So this direct connection between art and Buddhism was being made, um, and it was very fulfilling for me. Um, my son, David Gellis, whom you know, um, mm-hmm. has been a big influence in my life. Uh, David picked up his first book on Buddhism in off my desk in... Uh, Sausalito, California, when I was working on an exhibition on Japanese Buddhism. And he read it, and it, as you know, transformed his life. And he went on, we went on to um, study at the Zen Center, of course. And when he went back to uh, the university, um, BU, Boston University, excuse me, um, he went on to India to take his junior year abroad. I was afraid I'd never see him again, mm-hmm. but. Um, <laughs> They, I would call and they would say, no, uh, the monks would tell me, no, David, not here, under the Buddha tree, under oh. the Bodhi tree. <laughs> oh. So I very, very rarely got to talk to him. But David came back um, transformed by this uh, experience and ultimately um, 
wrote a book called uh, Mindful Work and has had columns in the New York Times where he's a reporter. So his influence on me has been profound. Um, He also gave me, when I got sick in 2008, books by you, Sharon, and also mm-hmm. by John Kabat-Zinn, his, um, the book about um, the, uh, what is it called? The contract. The Great- full catastrophe. The full catastrophe, yeah, yeah. which made me realize I was not alone in my suffering and mm-hmm. that I could change my relationship to pain. And your teachings um, also transformed my life because it opened my heart to accepting the new body that I had. But um, I've been attracted to meditation because it's a practice that's available to all of us. Um, Mm -hmm. It can reduce stress, increase calmness and clarity. And most of all, for me, promote happiness. Well, that's beautiful. Um, Let's talk about the chapter of your life when you were first affected by chronic Mm. illness. Um, I had been healthy most of my life and was off in uh, February of 2008 negotiating a big show for King Tutankhamen for 11 other art museums. And I was in uh, Austria meeting the Egyptian delegation. Um, And I felt like I got the flu there. I wasn't really sure. Um, Then I went on to London and was definitely getting sicker and came home early. And when I came home, everybody, including my doctors, thought, oh, you just have the flu, you're coughing. Mm. And um, then finally, when I couldn't speak anymore and all I could do was cough, um, I went to see I went to see a much better physician um, who was a specialist in this area, Dr. Rosenblatt. And um, he helped me to realize that this was a, a very un- we had a very unusual circumstance going on. And I struggled for a number of years to stay on as the director of the Dallas Museum of Art. Um, and every time I would go to go gatherings or openings, I would come away sick and go back into the hospital because I just couldn't manage being around other people without picking up their infections. So um, finally, and I was angry, Sharon. I mean, I was really angry mm-hmm. at my body. And at myself, because it was failing me. And I had the job of my dreams. I was happy uh, doing it. It gave me great fulfillment. But my body just got weaker and weaker until finally, um, in 2012, I retired. And and then I decided to... um, Uh, rest and recover for a short period of time. I never listened to my body. I always would push through it and go back to work too early, my doctors would say. And um, happily for me, um, around that time, the University of Texas hired me. And because a teaching schedule is public, but not as public as being an art museum Mm -hmm. director, I was able to succeed and begin teaching at the medical school at UT Southwestern and also at the Center for Brain Health. So my life changed. But the illness is still with me today, 13 Mm -hmm. years later. Um, It's just a part of who I am. And now I accept it. Um, In the morning, I get up and do a body scan. I don't get up. After I open my eyes, Mm -hmm. I think, what a gift it is that I'm here and I'm breathing, even though every breath hurts, uh, almost like a thousand knives going in and out with each Mm -hmm. breath. And that pain of breathing is a source of life for me. Um, It is, keeps me aware of uh, always of what is, what is present in my life. My choice is not to live in pain. My choice is to live in joy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think the illness has given me gifts that are way beyond anything that I could have ever really understood. It is, I've learned to live with the pain and, and I've changed my relationship to it. Um, so that's where I am today. It's amazing. I mean, especially, you know, um, not that it was the same uh, cause of the illness, you know, but look at our time, you know. And- I know. And the struggles and, you know, uh, the fear and, and uh, you know, some people really struggling with 
um, long haul COVID and, right. you know, and right. just like so many things that are yeah. prevalent the, around that issue. The number of um, complications that I, I've experienced as a result of, uh, I take 40 medications a day and I do wow. nebulizers six times a day. And so the nebulizers are a gift because it's when I, I practice meta. And um, so I used to, when I was working at the museum, I wouldn't do that. I would just plow through and do emails while I was trying to get air into my lungs. But um, today, I don't do that. I, I relax and and uh, just, uh, you know, meditate for that period of time because I have to let the medications come into my body so that I can go for another four, four or five hours. And I just have to say that... Uh you know, this is not a visual medium, but looking at you, you know, yeah. since we're friends or, or looking at a photo of you, uh, you don't look haggard, you know, <laughs> or like, uh, like you're, you know, sometimes, of course, with pain, yes, the tendency we have is to tighten up the whole rest of our body mm -hmm. to almost try to thrust it out or something. And mm -hmm. so we've added a tremendous stress and yes, tension to the pain and you know, I look at you and, and uh, you're kind of radiant, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. Well, I think a lot of that comes from my practice um, uh -huh. of doing something new, you know, and, and also the way I greet each day. Um, we have tremendous power over our brains. Um, mm -hmm. We may not have a lot of power, I've learned, over your body, but... Mm -hmm. um, but I've learned through all these years of meditation that um, even like this February, I had a terrible accident, was in the hospital for six weeks. And, mm -hmm. and um, I listened to you and John for hours and hours at a time as I uh, was recovering from surgeries and going through trying to learn to walk again. And, you know, you... I could have sat there. A lot of the nurses would say, you know, a lot of people would just sit there and be miserable, but you get up out of, you want to know when can you get up out of your chair, your bed and when mm -hmm. can you walk and when can you go down and what is there on this floor that we can look at that we've never seen before? Oh, <laughs> you oh. know, they, they would just, um, you know, it gave them hope. And of course this was, I was in the hospital during COVID time, so yeah. I could have no visitors and, and, uh, I lived on a lifeline of, text messages mm -hmm. and uh, and video calls. I mean, that's that was all I had. I'm wondering about um, this practice you, you just sort of referred to a little bit about doing something new each yeah. day and where that came from. Well, um, it was a it was on uh, very specifically July the eighth, two thousand and eleven. I got a call from my physician. Um, that they had done a biopsy and that they found that uh, this was two and a half years after I got sick, that the virus was growing in my lung and that it would continue to grow. Um, we would see new specialists at all the great clinics around the country, but um, there it was unknown what I had. And so I remember just leaning against my car in the parking lot and going, this isn't a real phone call that's happening to me. Um, but I was picking my, up my brother at the airport. And when I got home, I told him this story and said, I think I'm going to have a glass of wine and take a rest. And that's what I did. And when I uh, woke up, I always keep a pad of paper by my, by my um, bedside. And I wrote down um, the practice. Um, I'm going to do something new every day. I'm going to take an ordinary day and make it extraordinary through the power of intention. I can meet new people. I can go to new places. I can have new experiences um, and do new things with my friends. These experiences could be big or little, and new flavors of ice cream count. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I wrote that down, but I'm so grateful because I've had thousands of them. Um, I cannot <laughs> carry forward. So in a day that I do three or five things, I can't carry them to the next day. And I cannot count medical or um, or work experiences. That would be too easy. So it was a way for me to start my life anew, if you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And 
to see um, if I could do this for more than a few days. I thought, oh, I'll do this for a week or two. Um, but the focus for me would be on beauty and joy and gratitude and connecting with people. And um, now I've been doing it for 3,703 days. My goodness. Do you ever get to like the end of the day and think, <laughs> yeah. well, I guess there's always ice cream, like you said. There's always ice cream, but it only counts the first time, Sharon. So um, last night I had um, passion fruit ice cream, which I'd never had. But, um, <laughs> but it, you know, once I've had that scoop, it sits in there and I often have ice cream parties. Um, and also at the end of the day, um, yes, at 11.45, I have a prepared drawer. Uh, over the years, friends have given me games um, and toys to play with. I got, One night I went out and danced in the light of the moon. Oh. Uh, another time I, yeah, and another time I went out, um, it was uh, 11.50, I was writing a paper and I decided it was time to have a duck race in the pool. You know, I just needed to break my thinking patterns into a new way. So, it, it's a gift to realize that it's brought a lot of play and joy into my life by by intentionally doing something new every day. It's so fantastic. And I think I, I wish I could see you every night at 1150, <laughs> you know, and just say, all right, <laughs> you've well, only got 10 minutes. Left. I've only got 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, I post, um, as you know, I post them on Instagram, um, the simple pleasures of living and also on Facebook. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of a chronicle of, mm -hmm. um, of this journey uh, of celebration. Um, and when I wake up in the morning, as I said earlier, it takes me a lot of time to come into the world. I, I don't do well uh, in the first morning, part of the morning because mm -hmm. I have so many medications and things that I have to do. And, um, and I have to attend to them because if I don't do them, I'm not going to get through the day. Uh -huh. So um, my focus in the morning, there's a wonderful quote by Montesquieu that says, in the morning when I wake, um, that morning is filled with a secret joy. I see the light with a type of delight and the rest of the day I am happy. Wow. So that's my morning mantra. <laughs> Well, well, you're especially, I mean, you're practicing you, yeah. are especially inspiring because I think about, well, like you in the hospital when you couldn't get visitors. Right. You know, so much has been taken away from people in just the yes. current circumstance. And, and uh, you know, so there's, there's limitations, there's yes. real aloneness, there's physical pain. And yet, you know... Um, Listening to you, it's, it feels so expansive. It's so open. Oh, thank you. Well, it's true that, you know, life life does not have to be the way it was or perfect. Life is never perfect. Um, to be wonderful. And so I think, unlike a lot of people, I was really prepared for uh, solitude because there have been periods in my illness where m both of my vocal cords um were damaged and I couldn't speak for several mm -hmm. months. And so I learned a lot about solitude and uh, communicating in a different way. Mm -hmm. and, um, that what help, what has helped me with my do something new practice is the celebration of, uh, of little things in life um, that can become discoveries and lessons for the larger, um, for my, my life in a larger sense. Mm hmm and I know that as the practice has evolved over time, uh, you have expanded it considerably mm -hmm. and, and you're working alongside, now you're working alongside neuroscientists at right. the University of Texas at Dallas's Center for Brain Health. Yes. Uh, and the, you are the director of Art Brain Innovations, you know, <laughs> which is a great title. And you're right. also teaching now about the interplay of art and health at mm -hmm. uh, UT Dallas and UT Southwestern mm -hmm. Medical School. It's all what, true. What is the director <laughs> of Art Brain Innovations? Yes. Do uh, <laughs> what does it do? Well, um, I am very lucky that um, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, Sandy Chapman, uh, invited me to give my very first lecture on "Do Something New." She, heard, I went over and was visiting with her, and I told her about my practice. This was when I was only about two years into it, and she said, "Oh my gosh." 
do you understand how important this is to the development of the neoplasticity and the dopamines and everything? Mm. These were all words I had never heard about. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about that. And so Sandy uh, invited me in to give talks and uh, presentations to her, uh, staff and to the public. And it they became more and more popular. Um, and it taught me that brain health is uh, just as important as the health of your body. And though we don't, but we don't give it enough attention. And uh, here I'm working with a wonderful team about on my do something new practice to develop uh, units that we can teach uh, for a major 10-year study that the Center for Brain Health is doing called the Brain Health Project to help people improve their brains. And um, my sessions will deal with gratitude and nourishing relationships and all the different things that I do as part of the discoveries in my practice. And hopefully will lead to a way in which people who go through the practice um, in the Brain Health Project can develop new habits that will change their lives and help them to be Come better at, um, you know, at uh, develop, developing novelty and curiosity in their lives. What are the researchers finding in response to the brain encountering novelty? Yeah, well, that was uh, that they uh, they have at the Center for Brain Health been very kind to me because, as you know, I'm a lay person. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm an artist, trained art historian. Uh, so uh, I understand the concept of novelty because that's how great new trends in art as we move through the history of uh, our visual culture. Uh, the most dramatic thing uh, that we can remember is the move from realism to abstraction um, at the turn of the century and then later in the 60s to abstract expressionism where you didn't have to have a content to your painting. And so um, I under, I understood the concept of that, but now I understand that novelty by its very definition is that it is something new to us and it's a new experience and it can take many forms. Um, you can develop new skills, you can buy a new outfit, you can listen to new music, you can go traveling. All of these are novel experiences. But um, one of the uh, Great researchers here, Dr. Jeff Ling, who is the co-director of the Brain Health Study, um, points out that novelty is a contributor to improving our brain health. And when you do something new, you lay down new neural pathways um, that are, are associated with developing your memory. And your our brains are plastic and that they can constantly build and renew uh, themselves and that these new neural pathways that we develop through the practice of doing something new um, prevent can prevent um, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease or diminish, not, not prevent them. I didn't mean to say that at all, but can help a person in those uh, suffering from those diseases mm -hmm. um, because we're staying ahead of the problem mm -hmm. rather than um, just focusing on uh, trying to treat the patient. Um, novel experiences are critical to our brain. They're part of how we have our uh, developed curiosity. Um, they create new networks. It, they encourage our creativity. It's, it's critical. Um, the other thing that another scientist, Dr. Ian Roberts, pointed out is that dopamine, um, which is cr really critical to um, the development and the um, giving us spurts of um uh, new ideas comes from uh, doing something deuce, comes from novelty. And of course, novelty makes us happy um, when we do new things. Um, sometimes we fail, succeed or fail, but this idea that we're developing pathways, we're develop expanding the use of dopamine to keep us motivated and living well. Um, without novel experiences, um, creativity, innovation, um, they begin to Stop, uh, stop developing in our brains, especially when we get over, older. I'm 75 and doing this every day. So um, their uh, insights have helped me to be encouraged about my practice and to put it into a new light, which I hope to write about in my new book. Yes, I want to talk about your book in a second. But before we do, um, going back to kind of where we started this conversation, it seems that 
to me that the novelty doesn't have to be something dramatic. It could be no. Monet looking at a turn of the light yes. on the same old object, you know, mm-hmm. but that change in the light is, is mm-hmm. actually a significant shift. And, and that's, it, that's exactly what Do Something New is about. It's just like meditation. It's about the uh, intention to notice it, that you're out there seeking these things, mm-hmm. um, looking for these special moments. And it's the ability to focus with attention when it happens and to record it. I take thousands of photographs. I have 55,000 photographs on my little iPhone. Really? Uh, yes. Recording my days as you go, as I go through them. And at night, I might write about one of them, but there are always five or six events that have happened. And it's oh, but you can't about, accumulate, right? You can't. Yeah, I can't, I can't write that many. It takes a lot of time to write these little, for me, I try to be very thoughtful, but I write them down or I photograph them. And and it, it is the, the hook here is just like Monet. It's the intention to look and absorb the ideas. And it's the attention it takes to really be fully present and capture them and remember them. And so that combined experience makes can make for something new to do. I think that's so important because otherwise we get into that spiral of like, I need like um, radical change right now. <laughs> I need more stimulation. You know, I need, mm-hmm. uh, I can't look at that old haystack anymore. You know, like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like too much. So tell me about your book. Well, um, I've, uh, started. One of the things I decided to do is actually mention the fact that I was going to write the book to you today and to the listeners because it will make it manifest itself. But the I'm, uh, I've started the draft, which is really talking about how I came to practice Do Something New and talks about the discoveries I've made about um, self-compassion because I was so angry with myself for so long and then Learn, have learned to really accept myself and to be patient um, and allow my body to heal, to do these, uh, to do the miracle that can happen if you just allow it to happen, um, to be constantly seeking new uh, relationships with friends, even with old friends. Uh, uh, I, when they come over and visit for a cup of tea, I'll say to them, you're my something new today. And they go, oh no, because it means I want to know something about that person that I've never known before. Oh. And you can find, you can get, um, you know, tell me about your mother and your relationship with your mother or your father or your children, or what is something I don't know about you? In my case, many listeners would never expect that I was a great sailor, which I was for a long period of time. So I seek out those those moments um, to really uh, focus on. But the book is basically going to be about resilience, you know, how there can be a lot of obstacles in front of us and um, bad stuff happens to all of us, and it does. But you can accept, learn to accept it and to move forward and to start again. And just like meditation, uh, in life, you need that ability to take two steps forward and four back and then two forward and two forward and two forward and then three steps back. Mm-hmm. It's not a straightforward path, but it is a path that can be beautiful and inspiring if you allow yourself to open your heart to it and to others that are around you. So those key discoveries of playfulness, joyfulness, um, gratitude, compassion um, will be parts of the story in the book. It's really exciting. So you have to remind me to get it done. I will will completely remind you because um, I think it will be such a huge service really and, Mm -hmm. and fun to read too. Yeah. You know, you can list the ice, some of the ice cream flavors. Now, how many days have you been doing Do Something New now, did you say? I've been doing Do Something New for 3,703 today. Wow. Three, 3,703. So a little over 11. I've just started my 11th year. Wow. Yeah. And you're my Do Something New today. So even yeah. though I don't have a beautiful <laughs> face in front of me, you know, I have, I have the... Uh, everything else, you know, the microphones and other things. But I've been so excited to um, think about this session and sharing publicly my practice. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's so fantastic. And I actually wanted to talk 
uh, a little bit more about gratitude because uh-huh. um, it's such a double-edged sword in a way. Like anyone who encounters chronic illness or, um, you know, some terrible thing in their life and mm-hmm. having someone else tell you to be grateful is so infuriating, you know, and yeah. off-putting. But there's clearly a way of approaching gratitude that feels authentic and useful and mm-hmm. um, and uh, beautiful, you know, because it, it's so redemptive in a way. So can you say something more about how you approach gratitude? Oh, um, I'm, um, I'm thinking about that because uh, my first reaction was to say, I'm so grateful that you asked that question. Oh, yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> But, well, you are. Um, You're a living but, embodiment of right. how it can work, you know. <laughs> um, for me, the practice of gratitude is central to my practice of doing something new and doing meditation. Um, it is a key to happy having a happy life because if you're not grateful, then no matter um, – how much you have, um, you're not going to be happy. And, um, I want to be happy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that my eyes opened and that my feet landed on the ground and, um, that my brain is awake and writing new lectures. Uh, this week it was on cadavers and, and medical illustrations. Um, you know, we know how important gratitude is uh, in in medical science because it, it develops a lot of our prefrontal cortex. And even the simple act of writing letters, which I do once a, uh, once a year, I write letters to um, thank people who have been a part of my life and given me, um, given me so much courage and joy. Um, but what I think people don't realize is that gratitude is a choice you can make. And uh, you to be intentional about it and to pay attention to how what a special gift it is, 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 you know, whether it's that simple breath or or, you know, or a step forward in my case this spring. Um, I love your phrase, Sharon, of reaching for the good when you think about gratitude. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really, really important. And that goes back to um, why it's so central in my practice. It is a matter, it's again, a matter of intention and attention. And um, to be grateful means you are focusing on yourself and on, and on others. And like self-compassion and compassion, it is that um, huge gift that you can uh, give in life and uh, give to yourself. For me, uh, understanding that I have to listen to my body and uh, understand that when I'm in too much pain, I can be grateful, can sound a little crazy, but now at least I listen to those signals and I stop mm-hmm. and work on healing as opposed to work on working. So I don't know whether that um, that makes a lot of sense, but it, mm-hmm. it's absolutely central to my practice. Uh, and I know so many times people will tell me, oh, if you only took Chinese herbs or if you only did this, you know, mm-hmm. you would mm-hmm. you would get well. I'm not going to get well. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I have learned to um, choose to be grateful that I'm here and to act with joy um, every, every day of my life. Um, No, that's wonderful. It does make a lot of sense, you know, and it's also in the context of, it's very powerful in the context of um, how gratitude is often perceived, you know, that it means you'll settle for crumbs. You'll, you'll settle for less. You should, you know, it's a, it's an oppressive tool in some people's minds. And I suppose in some contexts it could be, you know, and, and yet it's such a, um, mark of resilience and and uh the vitality of the life force and uh better way to live (laughs) i know it's the way you it's the way you choose to live your life you know you've you give so many of examples of this in your teaching but um one of the uh my annual new year's resolution now is very simple to live life with joy Mm -hmm. so when I'm not joyful, I go, what's going on, you know, mm. and I stop 
if I can, sometimes I'm stuck in a meeting and I can't get out, but um, <laughs> but I can start thinking about other things <laughs> because I'm not joyful in, in, in that moment. And so I'm so grateful that I have developed this capacity to recognize uh, what for me is joy. It can be big or little, mm-hmm. um, but I'm grateful that I can understand that. And through that understanding, then I can move intentionally um, to a new place. It's really beautiful. And I am very grateful that we've had a chance to to connect and have this conversation. And I'm wondering if uh, you would lead us in a guided reflection of some kind. Yes, I'm honored to be asked for this. Uh, opportunity. As I mentioned to you, Sharon, I'm not a meditation teacher. I've been practicing meditation for a long time, and I uh, hope you all will be gentle with me. (laughs) (laughs) I chose uh, a loving kindness meditation um, in your honor, uh, which which is one I say often all day long, especially when I'm doing my nebulizers, because it, it focuses on the interconnectedness in life um, and the repetition, the silent repetition of the phrases of uh, our gifts of giving, um, of offering and of blessing to ourselves and to others. And that is so powerful for, um, for me. So I'm just going to turn our attention to ourselves and ask that we all sit comfortably And to settle in, if you can, straighten your back and feel the energy in your spine and the groundedness of your feet on the floor. And you can close your eyes or not, but just settle in and feel the release through your breath. Let's start with our breath going in and breathing out. This is a moment in your life, that breath. Your mind will wander, as Sharon advice always reminds me. I notice when I notice this, um, then I rest my attention on those thoughts and bring them lightly back like a butterfly landing on a flower. Don't worry if you lose your focus on your breath. First, we'll offer blessings to ourselves. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I live life with ease. Repeat these quietly. Rest in your body with the slow in and out of your breathing in your diaphragm. Pause before you let your breath out. And then gently, gently let go and release. Now think of someone who has inspired you, 
someone who makes you smile and bring them into your mind and offer the phrases of loving kindness. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live life with ease. Repeat them gently as you breathe. And as you focus on your breath, remember that this is a moment of true life. You are here. You are present. You are with others. Now, let's call to mind someone who is struggling now. Bring them into your mind and hold their hands. Can you look them directly in the eye and offer phrases of loving kindness? May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live life with ease. Repeat these phrases as you breathe and stay in this moment. Now let's call to mind all creatures, all beings everywhere, near and far, known and unknown, the world that surrounds us in beauty. This is my favorite. As the chorus sings, may all things be happy. May all things be safe. May all things be healthy. May all things live with ease. Well, thank you so much. It's so beautiful. Thank you. I I, I love these because um, the offering of this netta, because it's the only moment we have and to be fully present and to rest in joy. And um, when we begin to open our eyes, um, you recognize that you've been giving gifts of um uh, kindness and love um, and blessings to others. So that's why I love this meditation so much, Sharon, and thank you for teaching it to me. And thank you to the audience for listening. Oh, well, thank you so much for 
for coming. Um, and to learn more about Bonnie's work, visit www.dosomethingnew.org or check her out on Instagram at, at Bonnie Pittman, B-O-N-N-I-E-P-I-T-M-A-N. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.